hope came down. When we could not come to him, he came to us. That's the story of Christmas, isn't it? How the Lord came and brought us hope. Well, I'm using a text this morning that may seem distant from the Christmas story, but I'd like to introduce this series on the Christmas message today from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. And we're going to be considering as an illustration of what I want to say today, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 10. And I use that word illustration as opposed to interpretation because Ezekiel is not speaking of the Christmas story. He's speaking of some angelic beings that surround the throne of God. They are the closest created beings to God himself. And so, therefore, they reflect much of the nature of the God they're worshiping. And he describes these angelic beings in an unusual way. And his description fits aptly with the, what I want to tell you today about four perspectives on Christmas. So let me read Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 10. I think it's on the screen. As for the likeness of their faces, talking about these angelic beings, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. If you're a Bible marker, I would encourage you to mark the words man, lion, ox, and eagle. The Christmas story from four perspectives. Often, as we preach and teach through the Christmas season, we do it in kind of a microscopic sort of way. We zero in on one particular aspect or story or part of the Christmas story. And that's a wonderful way to do it. But what I want to do today is not take the, ma- the micro look at Christmas But I want us to take the macro look at Christmas. I want us to back out and look at the Christmas story in its larger setting. Because the four Gospels present to us four different perspectives on the Christmas story. Each of the Gospel writers presents the Christmas narrative in a little different way. And I began to ask myself some years ago as I studied the Gospels, why is that the case? My favorite course in college was the course on the New Testament. And my favorite part of that course was the first semester, which dealt with the Gospels. And one of our textbooks for that particular course was called The Harmony of the Gospels. It was an attempt to take all that Matthew said, Mark and Luke and John said, and put them together in some sort of chronological time sense. They tried to place the different miracles at the right place 
when Jesus performed them. Well, I must admit to you that even as a student, that study was somewhat confusing, and I have come to realize somewhat misleading, because I've come to the conclusion that these four Gospels were never meant to be harmonized, because these four Gospels are not biographies. A biography presents the full-orbed picture of a person's life. And if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are biographies, then they fail miserably at their purpose because there are huge gaps in the life of Jesus of which there is nothing but silence. From the time that he is an infant until the the time that he is 12 years old, we hear absolutely nothing from any of this quartet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There is one incident when he's 12 years old, when he becomes a son of the law, that Luke describes an incident where he's lost and later found in the temple. But from that time on until he's 30 years old, again, there is nothing but silence. So you see, these four Gospels are not biographies, but they are sketches that the writers want us to see a certain dimension or a certain purpose in his writing. Uh, trying to harmonize the gospel uh, is, is like trying to take two, four, four men who've never disagreed and, and harmonize them. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't need harmonizing. They just need understanding. To harmonize the gospel would be like me trying to take four pictures of my wife. One when she's wearing a formal at a wedding one when she's playing with the grandkids, one when we're visiting and vacation on the beach, and one when she's in the kitchen cooking. And take all four of those pictures and cut them up and then try to rearrange them into some one picture that would make sense. Well, that's nothing that will ever happen. And to try to harmonize the Gospels is to try to do the same thing. I have four in my library By the way, my preacher hero is uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and I have in my library four biographies of Charles Spurgeon. One of them is a large volume by Louis Drummond. It's a huge volume, covers his whole life. Um, And then one of them is about the downgrade controversy that that brought uh, Spurgeon out of the Baptist Union in England. One of them is, is is a very short general biography, easy to read. And the other one is a book written by a friend of mine concerning the leadership style of Spurgeon. Now, those four books are about the same man, but they're all different because each writer is pointing at a different aspect or dimension of Spurgeon's life. Matthew is the same way. Now, the Gospels are divided into two groups. There are what we call the synoptics and the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in content and emphasis. Synoptic, sin meaning the same, optic meaning to see. So the synoptic Gospels means to see the same. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke see the same. But yet they are different. Now, the the question arises sometimes, why four Gospels? Well, I think that's pretty easily answered. It's not because uh, uh, they needed to confirm each other. Uh, They can each stand on their own. 
But the interesting thing is that in Jewish life, how many witnesses did you always have to have? You could never convict somebody just with one witness. You had to have a minimum of two or three witnesses. And so in typical Jewish style, we were given four witnesses, more than the minimum concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. It wasn't obviously four gospels just because they wanted to fill up space. Because you see, you couldn't fill up the space of the life and ministry of Jesus. John, the last verse in the Gospel of John says, The world could not hold all the books on all that he did and said. So these four Gospels don't give us a complete picture, but it gives us exactly what the Holy Spirit knew that we needed to have. So these four Gospels were given to enhance our sheer interest in the Gospel accounts. It's like a kaleidoscope. It helps us to see the person of Christ in all of His beauty. It gives us a broader and deeper picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these synoptics uh, are are different from John uh, in several ways. Number one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the externals, or just the facts, of the life of Jesus. Uh, Like uh, the old dragnet show, uh, Jack Webb, you won't remember that, especially these young people here. But just the facts, man, just the facts. Anybody in here besides me remember that? that, Those are the synoptics. Uh, And uh, the synoptics focus on the whole three years of the life and ministry of Jesus. And the synoptics present the public discourses of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, and, and, and the discourses that he gave in public settings. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on Galilee and his ministry throughout Galilee. He's not in Judea very much in the synoptic gospels. But listen, look at the difference in John. John's ministry focuses on Judea. And instead of focusing on the whole three years of the life of Jesus, he really focuses in on the last week of Jesus and spends so much of the Gospel of John. Do you know that 93% 93 of the Gospel of John is not in any other Gospel? In other words, 93% of John's Gospel is unique strictly to him. And John doesn't focus on public discourses. John focuses on -on one-on-one interviews like the woman at the well like Nicodemus, and so forth. And John talks about what what Jesus meant when he said this. So John becomes our interpreter. He doesn't just tell us that Jesus was the bread of life. He goes on and interprets what that means. He doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the light of the world. John goes on and tells us what that means to us. So here we go now into this This whole notion of how these four gospel writers present to us the Christmas narrative. To me, it's it's an amazing thing. Now, I have a long quote here, and those of you guys who are doing the the screen, I'm going to omit that because I want to get right. That's a long quote. I'm not going to share it with you. But um, I want us to get right to Matthew. Let's go straight to Matthew because I, I can't wait to see what I'm going to say about this. I love, I love, I love uh, these four guys. I've been spending a lot of time with them this week, and I've kind of got to know them. Matthew, let's look at Matthew and how he deals with the Christmas story. All right, now, Matthew's gospel is illustrated by the lion in Ezekiel's verse. Remember, the lion, the man, the eagle. All right, 
Matthew's gospel is represented by the lion. Why do you think that's true? Well, the lion was the king of the beast. The lion was the symbol of Judah, the, king, the kingly tribe. And so Matthew is writing his gospel with a particular group of people in mind. Now, who is Matthew writing to? He is writing to Jews. And so when he writes to Jews, he assumes that they understand everything he writes. When he talks about the Passover, he doesn't explain what that is. He understands they already know. But when Luke and Mark talk about the Passover, then they have to explain to their audience what that is. So that lets us know that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Now, you know why he's writing? He's writing to show them and prove to them that the, the man they just crucified was their long-awaited, long-hoped-for Messiah. And so he uses the Old Testament. There are more quotes in Matthew's gospel than in all the other, uh, more Old Testament quotes in Matthew's gospel than in all the other gospels put together. And so why is he doing that? And, and throughout Matthew you hear, and the scripture is fulfilled. This scripture is fulfilled. This scripture is fulfilled. What's he doing? He's showing these Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. He is their king. So he, he's presenting Jesus. If you're filling in your blanks, he's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now, how does that fit into the Christmas story? Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that only Matthew presents the story of the Magi. Only Matthew presents the story of the wise men coming from the east to bring gifts. And what is their question? Where is he that is born, what? King of the Jews. Not the Savior of the world. These wise men don't come and say, where is the one born Savior of the world? No. They want to know where is the one who was born to this nation as the king. Usually we're born as princes and become kings, but they ask the question, where is he that is born king? And they bring gifts to give to this brand new born king. Only Matthew presents that. Why? Because only Matthew has as his focus presenting Jesus as king. So you need to understand that when we come to Christmas time, we come to worship a king. We come to bow before a king. We come to bring our homage and our, bring honor to the king. So Matthew's genealogy backs that up. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's, it's interesting that immediately he ties Jesus with David. And in his genealogy, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham, the racial father of the Hebrew people, through David, the royal father of the Hebrew people. And he stops the genealogy at Abraham. Why? He doesn't take the genealogy on back to Adam. Why? Because he's not interested in taking the genealogy back to the birth of man. He's interested in taking the genealogy only back to the birth of the Hebrew race. So, Matthew, the king. Got it? Hang on to that. All right, let's go quickly to Mark. You're listening too well. I got to go quicker. Mark, let's go to Mark. Mark. Mark is presented to us through the picture in Ezekiel 
of the ox. Now the ox is the emblem of lowly service. And Mark is not presenting Jesus as a king, but he's presenting Jesus as the servant of God. Listen to the theme verse of Mark, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so Mark's whole goal in writing his gospel is, number one, he's not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Roman audience. There are many believe that the name John Mark, John is his Jewish name, Mark is his Latin name. In the Gospel of Mark, there are more Latin terms than in any of the other Gospels. John is writing, I mean, I mean Luke, uh, Luke is writing to a Greek audience, whereas Mark is writing to a Roman audience. And so he tries to get into the Roman mindset. He realizes that to the Roman, they don't care who Jesus' daddy was. They don't care who Jesus' granddaddy was. They don't care what Jesus said. They don't care what Jesus wrote. The only thing the Romans want to know who glamorized power is this one you say is God? Is he a powerful God? Is this Jesus Christ that you're trying to convince me of? Is he a powerful God? And so Mark eliminates genealogies. You know what? Mark doesn't even have a Christmas story. You ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed there is no birth narrative in Mark at all? Why? Luke put it in. Matthew put it in. Why did Mark leave it out? Let me tell you why. Because Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant. Nobody cares about the genealogy of a servant. And so he leaves it out. Mark is presenting Jesus as the servant. The servant. Going about doing the Father's will. So when we come to Christmas, we not only come to a king, we come to one who epitomizes and illustrates for us what it means to serve our God. Mark. Mark. Now, let's go to Luke. Luke's theme is illustrated by the man in Ezekiel's vision. Remember, there was the man, there was the ox, uh, and then uh, uh, Luke is presenting him as the perfect man. The theme of Luke is to present Jesus as the Son of Man. That was the favorite term Jesus used of himself. He uses it 82 times, Son of Man. Now that means that Luke was presenting Jesus as the ideal man. Now he dedicates his gospel. Did you notice in, in the very first four verses of Luke's gospel, it tells us that he dedicated it to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was a Greek, apparently wealthy man. And Luke is writing to convince this Greek man that Jesus Christ is God. So he's writing to Gentiles. In fact, Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. All the other writers of Scripture are Jews but Luke. But Luke is writing to a, to a Greek. Now, what was the Greeks' notion of God? Well, if you look at the Greek gods, they were always hyped up men, Hercules, strong men. So Luke is presenting Jesus as the ideal man, as the God-man, 
as the man who is God, as much God as if he were not man, but as much man as if he were not God. And so Luke presents to him, uh, presents to us, a picture of the ideal man. Now, here's the interesting thing about Luke's take on the Christmas narrative. Luke's genealogy, interestingly enough, doesn't stop with Abraham like Matthew did. But it, let's look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, just for a moment. His, uh, his genealogy is not found until he gets three chapters into it. But if you go to Luke chapter 3, and uh, he, uh, look at verse, uh, the last uh, verse, verse 38. Uh, he's, he's cataloging his genealogy, and he's already taken it through, uh, through Abraham. He's already taken it through David. Remember, Matthew stopped at Abraham, remember? But he keeps going. Luke keeps going. And he comes to verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Luke takes his genealogy not back to Abraham to prove his, his, uh, uh, where, that, that he came at, in the line of David, but he takes it all the way back to Adam, the first man, to prove that he is the perfect man. So here we have Luke presenting to us the gospel of the perfect man. Now, Luke's gospel is interesting. I love Luke's gospel because Luke, as a Gentile, has a heart for evangelism, and he has a heart for the disenfranchised. He has a heart for the hurting. He has a heart. If you're here today and you're struggling in your life and you, you, you feel broken and you feel like nobody cares about you, you feel like you've blown it so much that there's no help for you, Luke's your gospel. You see, Luke, as a Gentile, is writing to those like you and me. And he, he includes stories that no other gospel includes. You, you've heard the story of the prodigal son. It's found nowhere else but Luke's gospel. You've heard the story of the prostitute that came to Christ and was saved, of the leper that Jesus healed and touched. Those are, are, are Zacchaeus when nobody wanted to have anything to do with a tax collector. But Luke did. And Luke, Luke reached out to the disenfranchised. He reached out to the hurting. Why? Because Luke is presenting to us Jesus as the perfect man who came to be one of us so that he could die in our place as the perfect man. Now, notice this about Luke. Who came to Luke's Christmas story? There are no kings bearing gifts. There's no oriental wise men acknowledging him as a king. Humble shepherds coming to pay homage to one like them. That's what I mean by taking the macro look. Now, let me close this message by asking, so what? What does that mean to me and to you today? Well, let me apply it this way. Number one, as sovereign king, I ask you this question. Is Jesus Christ king in your life today? Virgin said, everybody loves God everywhere except on his throne.
Is Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart and life today? You see, Jesus didn't save you just so you could go to heaven when you die. Jesus saved you so that he could rule and reign from the throne of your heart. As Major Thomas used to say, God is not just interested in getting us out of earth into heaven. He's interested in getting God out of heaven into man down here on the earth. And he, he does that by ruling and reigning on the throne of our heart. And there's only two things that will keep Jesus from ruling in your life, sin and self. He, Jesus won't sit on the throne with our pet sin. So we have to repent of our sin, ask him to forgive us. And then self will keep us. He won't won't share the rule with us. I think that's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. The poet said, oh, to be free from self, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in thee. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ who lives in me. Is he your king? This Christmas, this story presses that question to our heart. Is Jesus Lord of your life this Christmas? Number two, servant. Servant. Are you serving Jesus this Christmas? You see, this in many ways rebukes our self-centered materialism, does it not? You see, we won't walk far in the steps of Jesus until we, like Him, are serving others in the name of Christ. So I ask you, as I close this message, is he your king? I ask you, are you serving him in some capacity? Are you reaching outside of yourself? Or is Christmas all about me, myself, and I? And then what about son of man? He helps us to see how far short we fall of God's ideal. When I look at God's perfect man, I recognize my imperfections. And I realize I must have his righteousness. So the fact that he's the son of man convicts me. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he'll rebuke the world of sin righteousness and unbelief and then he says of sin because of righteousness because I go to my father Jesus is saying I won't be here in in my person anymore to convict you in other words I won't be living a a righteous life in front of you to say man I need to be living that way but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to come and inhabit your humanity and he will convict us of a lack of righteousness Son of man. And then lastly, Son of God. What does that say to us here at Christmas? How do we apply the fact that John has proven that he is the Son of God? Remember, John said in John 20, 31 concerning what he wrote, but these are written, the Gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You know what I love about John's story? The eagle represents John. You know why? Because John came to present Jesus, not as the son of man, but as the son of God. 
And John's Christmas story, where does it begin? Not in Bethlehem. Not in Jerusalem. Where does John's Christmas story begin? In the beginning was the what church? And the Word was with? And the Word was God. John's Christmas story doesn't begin in the stable. It begins in the beginning. Isn't that amazing to know that before anything else was ever even made, God had you and me in mind. That is amazing. Before I ever knew Him, He knew me. Christmas reminds me that I have a sovereign, that I am to be a servant, that He was a perfect Son of Man, and that God so loved me, the Son of God, so loved me that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great Savior. Amen? What a great Savior.